for those of you who are new, welcome here. Uh, my name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Toronto, and it is my pleasure to welcome you. A particular welcome to our West End congregation. We are so glad that you are here. We are sad for the reasons that brought you here, but so glad that you are with us. It is a delight to see you all. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Galatians. We are um, uh, in the second week of it, and so we are still in the first chapter uh, of the book of Galatians. And so if you have got a bulletin, on the back panel are the relevant scriptures we will be reading. Galatians chapter 1, there is a portion there, and then for reference, uh, Paul's story of his conversion found in Acts chapter 9, and here to help us with the reading of God's Word, Hannah. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, and Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to the to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us have by now, if we have been somewhat engaged with our culture this week, seen a viral video that went out of a courtroom scene. A female police officer had just been convicted of murder. She had wandered into uh, an apartment in her own complex, thinking it was her home, saw a black man in the apartment that she thought was hers, shot and killed him. Her name was Amber Geiger. In the sentencing hearing, 
Victim impact statements were heard. What went viral this week was the statement of the brother. His name is Brant Jean. Brant said these words, I forgive you. I love you like I love others. I personally want the best for you. If it were up to me, and I'm speaking for me, I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. And if Botham were here, he would agree. The best would be, give your life to Christ. And then he turned and he asked the authorities, would it be all right if I went and gave her a hug? And he did. And the world sat up and took notice. What kind of person faced with that kind of tragedy and that kind of injustice in their home, what kind of a person gives that kind of forgiveness? Where is the power coming from that animated Brandt? The answer is the power of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and love and grace God pours out through the gospel. Later, Brandt's father, Bertram, would say, I felt the same way as him. I wish I could have extended the same courtesy. He said, that's what Christ would want us to do. This story of costly forgiveness speaks to a power almost unheard of in our judgmental, justice-addicted society, the power to simply forgive. A supernatural, real power that not only transformed that courtroom, but is now transfixed a continent, maybe even a world. People tell me somewhat regularly, they don't see much evidence for God in this world, particularly evidence for the Christian faith. I need to say back to those who say that, watch the video. And then ask yourself, what kind of evidence do you need? This story, the story of costly, unconditional grace and forgiveness, of inexplicable power and grace by an 18-year-old introverted grieving brother is itself powerful evidence of the reality of the truth and power of Jesus. And the power that we saw in Brandt is not just in him. This kind of power has been manifested for thousands of years and is resident in billions of people. And if you are a Christian, that power is available to you. And if you're not, that power is being offered to you today. Paul, in these verses, is defending his own authority to a divided, testy group of churches in a region called Galatia back then. It's now modern Turkey. They have been influenced by some teachers who claim to be Christians, but have actually distorted the message of the gospel by adding to it Jewish laws of circumcision and obeying Torah. And in so adding, they have emptied the gospel, according to Paul, of its power. They're explicitly challenging Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ because the primary criterion to be an apostle in this day and age was to have personally met and heard Jesus teach you. And so in this passage, Paul begins a biographical sketch that proves he is actually an apostle who met Jesus and got his message from Jesus himself. 
That's the whole point of this passage to his original audience. But in the process, Paul has something to say to us. But there are two things that the gospel gave him and the gospel gives you or can give you that we need to hear. One, the gospel is really true. Secondly, the gospel is really powerful. (laughs) Very simple. The gospel is really true. Now, look at um, your passage. Look at the first passage, Galatians 1. His thesis statement is right there in verse 11 of this passage. The gospel that was preached to me by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Okay, that's his thesis. Now, here's his evidence. For you have heard of my former life, verse 13, of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism among many, beyond many, of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. This is his former way of life. And it's a fascinating bipolar view. He is... In his former life, Saul, a religious Jewish person called a Pharisee, one of the Jewish elite who regulated the moral and spiritual culture of Israel at the time, primarily. There were other groups, but they were one of the dominant ones. They were guardians of Jewish teaching and ethical living. They were considered models of behavior that is quote-unquote godly. And Paul says, I was one of them. Scholars think Paul gets this detailed because the false teachers whom he is having to refute had a high view of these Pharisees. They had a high view of the Jewish law. They had a high view of circumcision. They thought all Christians needed to enter in that Jewish system, which the Pharisees were the guardians of. And he is saying, I'm one of the Pharisees. I should know you're wrong. You see, Paul is saying, in my former way of life, though I was highly religious, I was opposing God. And we need to stop here and look at this bipolar description and ask ourselves some questions. Paul says that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Destroy it. While he was advancing in Judaism beyond most of the people of his age, and while he was um, uh, zealous for the traditions of his fathers, he sounds really good on one side and it's terrible on the other. And so, first thing I think we need to think about to the Christians in the room here, and there are many of us who are tired of hearing from a skeptical culture oh, religions are tribal and divisive forces often. They have an excluding dynamic that makes people judgmental, filled with hatred of others, hungry for a weird kind of power, sometimes intolerant. We hear this all the time from the secular culture, and it kind of bothers us. But you need to hear from Paul, that's what it did to him. Religion can do that. It often does do that. Skeptics have a point to point this out. And we need to admit that. We need to say that there is something in the religions that most humans make that creates this kind of dynamic. It just does. It's statistically provable. And Paul says, it was my reality. But to those of us who are curious or skeptical about the Christian faith and we're here, Paul also wants to say that dynamic 
of ascending the ladder, of being intolerant, of being rules-based and judging others. That's not the gospel. That's not the truth. In fact, that wasn't even proper Judaism. The God who created the Jewish religion created it to point to Jesus and created it to find its terminus, its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish prophecies, the one who is the end of their law and the fulfillment of it, who said there's not one jot or tittle, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Jesus is what Judaism was meant to point to, and Paul's pointing out, I missed it. And so did many of my others. Judaism had become for Paul another religion, a place where people obey rules that they thought made them better than others, where people had leaders who enforced orthodoxy and punished those who don't toe the line. That's what human-made religion often, maybe even almost always, looks like. But by the way, those of us who are more skeptical and secular, let's not get too self-righteous because guess what? Our culture does that too. I was uh, walking by, I, I think it was a restaurant, it might have been a butcher shop, and a bunch of vegan protesters were out there blocking the entrance and screaming invective uh, toward the people inside the shop. I mean, you don't think it was judgmental and intolerant? I was talking, uh, there was a guy who was texting me, friend, old friend of mine from Vancouver, and um, a couple of years ago, he was a skeptic of climate change, okay? <laughs> and he outed himself at his work as a public skeptic of climate. You do not do that in, in modern day global city Canada. You do not tell someone, I don't believe in climate change. He said he got clobbered. Why? Because it's orthodoxy in our culture. And we punish the Neanderthals who don't believe in our orthodoxy. Look, this creation of orthodoxy, making the rules, creating leaders who enforce it, and then punish those who step out of line, that just isn't religions. That's humankind. That's what we do. We have religious and we have secular expressions of it, but it's innate to us because we long to be self-righteous. We long to look better than others. And Paul said, in the midst of my religiosity, I was struggling with that and I was persecuting the church of God. Then Paul says, God intervened. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, now look at that verse. What does he say? In contrast to human-made religion of either the secular or religious variety, this gospel is not about rules being followed and enforced. It's about God revealing himself. It's not about the regulation of behavior, but about the revealing of God to us in relationship. And that's what God did. You see in the Acts 9 narrative, Paul is traveling with others to a place called Damascus. He is a leader of the group of Pharisees who are charged with stamping out Christianity. And God in Jesus meets him in a spectacular physical, visceral, real way, and says, Saul, Saul, why 
are you persecuting me? Now, let's slow down again here for a moment and reflect. Paul says in Galatians 1, he was advancing in Judaism, but when God revealed his son to me, in order that I might preach him, I did not go consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem or those who were apostles, but I went away into Arabia and went into Damascus. So I need to ask you this question. Tell me what happened to Paul. How is it that someone who is ascending the religious and social ladder of being a Pharisee, esteemed by his people, almost surely married, not, we don't know for sure, but almost every Pharisee in the historical record was married with kids, so there's a very good chance Paul was married with kids while this was happening. What would cause him to repudiate his religion, leave all of his social networks, lose his career and his job, possibly have his wife and kids abandon him and go and defend the very thing he thought was a vile, blasphemous heresy a week earlier. What would cause him to change so suddenly? You really have two options. A massive mental health issue that made him incredibly deluded and Paul shows no evidence of it in his life before or after, or he really, truly, actually met Jesus risen from the dead as a fact of history. Those are your two choices. The evidence of history, the evidence of Paul's life before and after is of a rigorous, intellectual, strong-minded person of sound mind and body who had a massive reversal of belief. The only reasonable explanation of it is that he actually met Jesus risen from the dead. Paul will tell the church at Rome these words. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, Romans 1, chapter 1. Verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, an actual human being of the lineage of David, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's gospel. I met him, risen. It changed me because it's true. The gospel is really true. Paul is saying to the readers, nothing other than the personal revelation of God to me would have changed me. God himself met with me, gave me the gospel, and proved to me that Jesus was who he said he was. It's really true. Secondly, the gospel is not just really true. The gospel is really powerful. Now, we, we pick up Paul's story again. He has just had Christ revealed to him. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He is emphatic here that after he received the gospel, he went straight to Arabia, not to Jerusalem. Why? Because the people who came with the false teaching came from Jerusalem. 
And they claimed, because Jerusalem was the center of Judaism and known to be the historic center of the Christian faith, because that's where Jesus died and rose again, Jerusalem is the epicenter of authority. And so the argument of these people, apparently, who, di- who disliked Paul was, oh, he just went to Jerusalem, heard this stuff, sort of, didn't quite get it right, and now he's just repeating what he heard, and he's mixed it up. We also come from Jerusalem. We got the true story. And Paul says, no, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I heard from God, and then I went to Arabia, and I began to preach. Acts tells us that's what he did. Then only later, three years, and Acts 9 records it, does he go and have a brief trip to Jerusalem after three years. Paul's saying, I didn't need to go. I went straight to Arabia. Now I need to ask you something. What would cause you, I'll ask you the question again, to leave life, wife, kids, career, friends, family, everything? to become the chief proclaimer of a faith that you had just been the chief persecutor of as a cult? What would cause such inexplicable change? What kind of power gives you the courage and the freedom to leave all that behind? What would you give up your career, your family, your friends, your social standing for? What gives you the power to have so much freedom that you don't need that anymore? And the answer is that supernatural power was unleashed in Paul. And we're going to go back and look at the three phrases to give us the clues. The three phrases found in verse 15. When he who had set me apart, first phrase, before I was born, who called me by his grace, second phrase, was pleased to reveal his son to me or in me, third phrase. Let's look at those three. He who had set me apart from birth. Paul is saying that God, knowing Paul, from the time of Paul's birth, set him apart to be his child. Knowing that Paul would be a violent persecutor, and one of the most effective agents in stamping out Christianity, God still loved him. Loved him enough to plan for him to receive his grace and to meet Jesus. Paul, in Ephesians 1, to the church at Ephesus, said it even more powerfully. He said, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ Paul saying this the gospel doesn't talk about rules of ascending to God it talks about a God who before the foundations of the earth thought about you and loved you and wanted to have you become his child who sent Jesus his beloved son to remove the barriers to you becoming his child and Jesus from all eternity said yes I will willingly go down I will willingly become a human and I will willingly pay the price it takes to adopt you second phrase called me by his grace 
Paul is pointing out something here that gets to the essential difference between human-made religion and the true gospel of God because all human-made religions, either secular or religious versions of these orthodoxies, they all have some standard, some orthodoxy to adhere to, some line of conduct to conform to so that the God we believe in or the progressive Salvation we hope for depends upon our behavior. We earn our place in these systems. We perform and we get rewarded. We don't and we get punished. That's how it's architected. But the gospel is not made that way. The gospel is about grace. It's about a God who calls us unconditionally by his grace sovereignly he calls us to himself in love he says stop performing for me you can't i'm sending my son because my standards are too high for you you cannot conform to them you think your standards of your orthodoxy are high judaism veganism nothing compared to my standards i'm perfect i'm holy i demand of you perfect love of your neighbor perfect love of me how you doing? No religion, no progressive movement, no ethical system has ever come close to those standards. And God said, I know. There's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. But God says, by grace, I call you and I come to you. I call you to stop trying to perform, stop trying to earn, stop trying to deserve my love. I come unconditionally of my own initiative to you, my sovereign grace. In grace, I come and call you. He's now older, the aged leader of an iconic band, U2, Bono, said these words. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Physics, every action met by an equal or opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that as you reap, you will sow stuff. Grace defies region, re reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> Bono continues, th th that's just between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep uh, doo-doo. <laughs> it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend upon my religiosity. That's the gospel. And it's in this phrase, revealed Christ in or to me. In, in this translation, it's the word to. But the Greek word, en, more or less, uh, can be translated, often is translated in, not to. So it could be that he revealed Christ in me. Scholars are divided. I have a feeling it's the word in, and here's why. Because I don't think Jesus appearing in his risen form to Paul was enough. 
It was necessary. It was the necessary true evidence. But Howard and McPhee and I have been talking about this. We think there were people who saw the resurrected Jesus after he rose and didn't believe. We know there were people who saw Jesus before he died, raising people from the dead and doing all kinds of miracles who didn't believe. I had a small group of skeptics years ago and uh, started out with 11 guys. And, And seven of the 11 seemed to come to Christ, but four of them decided not to, and they sent a guy to me. And he came to me rather sheepishly, Dan, we just really appreciate you spending this whole year looking at the evidence for the Christian faith, and I can't, I can't tell a lie. I'm here on behalf of four, four people, three other guys, you know, so, 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 I'm not going to name anybody. And uh, uh, we want you to know that the evidence is compelling. We'd be fools not to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But we're not going to become Christians. I said, okay, I, I, can, I can get that. Do you, do you mind telling me why? Okay. We're sleeping with our girlfriends. <laughs> and we know if we become Christians, God might ask us to stop doing that. I said, okay. You know what they were saying? They love their relationship with their girlfriends and the sexual dynamics they're in more than they love Jesus. James K.A. Smith, I think, said it clearly. You worship what you love. And they didn't love Jesus more than having those relationships. Christ was revealed to Paul, but then God did something, called him by his grace, and crashed God's grace and love through Jesus into Paul. Christ was revealed in all of his love, all of his beauty, all of his glorious compassion into Paul. He met Jesus, and it came crashing down inside of him. So he could say, God set me apart for grace. God in love called me by his grace. That grace was revealed in me through Jesus, who died for my sins, not anyone's sins, mine. I'm here to tell you, that the power that we see in Brandt is the power that first came in when the overwhelming love of God and the unconditional grace of God poured into his life. And he knows that he doesn't deserve God's mercy, but that the Son of God hung on a cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to his own Father And his father, in love for us, poured his judgment on your and my sin on Jesus. And Jesus, in love for us, bore it so that he could come and give us, as it were, the hug of grace and forgiveness. Jesus died for you. God sent him in love to do that. And now God's asking you, let my love and my grace crash into you. You want the kind of power Brandt had? Receive the kind of grace Brandt did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I ask now that you, by your grace, would allow us to allow your love to crash into us. Allow your love to free us And give us the courage that we need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, I've got a zillion questions here. I'm just going to answer a couple, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. How do we explain grace being a biblical representation of karma to skeptics as positively getting what you don't deserve? Um, Grace isn't karma. That's the whole point. Grace is opposed to karma. It's not a biblical representation of karma. I think you misunderstood Bono. Grace opposes and upends and replaces karma. And that's what it means uh, in in the context of Bono's quote and in the context of the New Testament. So um, is it evidence of God's sovereign grace? I'm not sure what you mean. I think what you mean is, are you really sure that karma, that Bono's right, that karma is the architecture of the universe? That I could quibble with. I think grace is because God has shown it in Jesus. I was just quoting the man, not agreeing with everything he said, but what he said about grace was very powerful. What is the point of Saul being blind? What is the significance of that? I don't know. It's a great question. I really don't. I I can speculate and make myself sound good, but that's useless. All right. Uh, Isn't the Old Testament also say an eye for an eye like every other religion? Every other sin was reconciled with bloodshed. If the Old Testament stood on its own without the New Testament, if the Old Testament wasn't pointing to Christ, absolutely. I could understand why you make this point. Because there is justice. And so we need to understand that, that justice, an eye for an eye, that, 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 that there needs to be justice somewhere. And the Old Testament sets it up by saying there needs to be justice for sin committed. And in that respect, it is absolutely right. And in that respect, all orthodoxies, both secular and religious, are absolutely right. But here's the problem. Man-made religions and secular orthodoxies need that satisfaction to come from the perpetrator. They've got no room for grace because justice has to be satisfied. The beauty of the gospel is that justice is fully satisfied and grace is fully unleashed because the justice due me, the perpetrator, is poured out on somebody innocent who volunteered for it. It's crazy power because it's crazy true that the gospel does that. So yes, the Old Testament, as it points to the New Testament, sets up the need for satisfaction and justice to come upon moral wrong. And in the New Testament, it says that's absolutely true. It's actually so true that humans will not have the capacity to bear it. I need the perfect son of God, the infinite one, to come and suffer it because only in his infinite innocence and holiness and purity does he have the capacity to absorb the infinite punishment that justice is due and it's there that the infinite justice of God meets the innocent infinite holiness of Jesus and the infinite nature of God's grace is unleashed at the cross and that's why the Old Testament setting up the new is absolutely right and the new fulfilling the old is astonishingly absurdly beautiful and we're now going to go to the Lord's table where we are going to remember the astonishing nature of God's grace because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he said, this is my body. I am your substitute. I will take the infinite pain and judgment that you deserve. This is my body. And he asked us to eat it in memory of him. A little while later in the same meal, Jesus picked up a cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And he asked us to drink this in memory of him. 
And what Jesus was saying is that I am giving you a perpetual reminder, a perpetual reenactment of the glory, astonishing, unconditional nature of grace that I volunteered to do this for you on behalf of you. I'm going to shed my life that you may experience the grace of God in the astonishing way that I meant you to. And so we are going to feed you this meal of grace. We're going to feed you gluten-free bread. We're going to feed you wine and grape juice. Wine is darker than the grape juice. It's going to be passed by, and you're going to take it, and you're going to eat it when you are ready. But this is when I want you to think about when you should be ready. Take a moment and let the grace of God crash in on you. This is for me. He died for me. He gave his life for me. He took my sin for me. Then take it. If you are not yet a Christian, this is for the baptized believers who've trusted in Christ. Read read the prayers and ask yourself, could this be for me? And if you're ready, ask Jesus to come into your life today. Ask him. Say, I need your forgiveness. I believe you rose from the dead. I want your power. Come and forgive me. And for the rest of us, take with joy and allow God's freeing, powerful grace to unleash in you gratitude, forgiveness, mercy, and power to love God and love others because that's what grace does. Let's pray. Father, take this food and take this cup and make an extraordinary, powerful meal of thanksgiving and grace that we may be changed by encountering the risen Christ through your spirit in this meal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open.